our study now in our biblical perspective on the men of the Old Testament uh, brings us to the man Solomon. His life is contained in the book of uh, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, our time will mainly be spent uh, looking at 1 Kings and a few things that occurred uh, in his day. He was indeed an impressive person, and he was a person that had a lot of impact on the nation of Israel. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the nation of Israel, he would say two things to them. Uh, one is in Matthew 12, about verse 6, and I think the other one is in Matthew 12, about, I don't know, 42, 43, or 44. Uh, the first thing he says to them in verse 6 is, uh, the temple was a glorious thing, no doubt, in their mind. He says, but behold, a greater than Solomon's temple is standing before you. Uh, they put a lot of emphasis on the temple that Solomon built. They put a lot of emphasis on this great house uh, that they had here on this earth. But Jesus is reminding you, there's someone greater than this house. Uh, and, and that message needs to be uh, true in our minds today. Uh, with, with a lot of the confusion that's going on in the world around us, with a lot of the upheaval that's going on uh, in the world around us, a lot of the uh, government overreach that's going on around us, it is true that there may come a time where we're not allowed to meet in public in this place with the freedom that we have nowadays. And if we understand that it's not the house, but the God of the house that we are worshiping, that will help us in our journey here. We may have to meet in dens and in caves. We, have to make, we may have to shelter in the forest somewhere. And we may not be able to meet in these good buildings that we've been able to meet in. But if we understand that we're meeting to worship God and not a building that will help us greatly in our journey here in life. Now, you say, well, surely everybody believes that. No, not everybody believes that. Uh, uh, old Baptists are just like everybody else. They get set in their ways, and they get used to things, and they get used to being places. Uh, this is kind of why you can go into certain areas and you can have several small primitive Baptist churches within driving distance of each other. And you wonder, why are they so small? Well, because this church likes to be here. These people like to be here. These people like to be there. Uh, it was kind of interesting to me when I first started to travel around after being liberated to preach was, was all the, the churches that only met once a month. And yet you may go into an area, there's four churches that meet once a month, and it's just one rotating congregation in yeah. each place. Yeah. It's the same group of people each place, give or take a few, plus or minus a few people, but it's because we like being here, we like being there. You know, Jesus says there's one greater in the midst of you than Solomon's temple, and it's Christ himself. And then he would say in, in uh, Matthew 12, he says that the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment of this generation for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear and see the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon 
is here among you. He was indeed an important and an influential person. He was in one part a temporary fulfilling of the promise that God gave to David that when he was dead and slept with his fathers that he would raise up after him his seed to sit upon his throne forever. And Solomon was uh, an immediate temporary fulfillment of that. Uh, however, the ultimate real fulfillment of that promise is told to us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30 that uh, God spake of Christ, that he would raise him from the dead to sit in heavenly places on his throne in heaven and to occupy the throne of David, that Christ right now is sitting and reigning on the throne of David in heaven right now. That is not a futuristic time that the church is to be looking for during or after some tribulation period. Christ is on his throne right now. He's reigning right now. And Solomon, though, was used as somewhat of a uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, the one thing that I like, uh, I guess, about Solomon the most uh, is his request that he made of the Lord. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 is where we're going to read about this. Um, what we're looking at is a biblical perspective of the men of the Old Testament, that there were some great things about them uh, that we, we would want to model in our own lives. And there were some great things about them that God honored, but there was also enough things wrong with them to show each and every one of us that there's not been a person born that didn't need the grace of God. These, these things in the Bible are here for a reason. The Bible is, in some instances, in, the Bible in its truthfulness is a very offensive book because it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't candy coat things. It doesn't gloss over. It just tells you exactly the way it is. Um, if, if you were to write a book about your life, I guarantee you there's a few things you'd leave out. Uh-huh. That's right. That's exactly right. If I was to write a book about my life, I just wouldn't write it. That's just all there is to it. Uh, but when God wrote this book, He wrote everything. Warts and all. It, it didn't matter what it was. He put it in here. And He put it in here for one main reason, to show us there's not a person alive that doesn't need the grace of God. The Lord comes to Solomon in 1 Kings 3. And the Lord appeared to Solomon in dream. This is told to us beginning in verse 5. And God said, ask what I will give thee. Wow. What a statement. That, that is one of the most outstanding statements in all of scripture. That the God of glory comes to this individual and says, just simply ask of me what you want. What do you reckon your answer would be? Have you ever thought about this? If the Lord of 
Lord God came to you and said, just, just ask me what you want. And, and I'm assuming based on this, the way that this question is, is or this statement is written is, he's going to get whatever he asks for. Death of your enemies. Multitude of children, maybe. Pleasantness and peace throughout the land in your days. There's a lot of things that we could ask for. Solomon says that thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. According as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee, and thou hast kept for, them, for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. That's a, that's a pretty noble statement. It's a humble statement. And one of the things that you can contrast between the life of David and the life of Solomon is it does indeed appear that Solomon, um, excuse me, that David was uh, more noble than Solomon. Because this, this theme of David being a man after God's own heart and walking after God seems to apply more to David than it does to Solomon. Solomon, we will see through this, will be a more wise person, but he'll not be near as moral as David. And you say, well, gracious, David, David made a mess of his own life. Solomon made a mess of his. How can one be more moral than the other? It's possible to be that way. Solomon does make this point here that, that he sits upon a throne. He is in a position that is there by the grace of God. That God, through His great kindness, has placed Solomon in this position. When you look at the failure of Solomon, or you look at the failure of David, or Moses, or Noah whoever you want to look at here in, in our perspective, there's one thing that's sure. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. Moses was a meek man and called to lead the nation of Israel. David was anointed by God to lead Israel. Solomon was chosen and anointed to take David's place when David dies. This is of the hand of God. God put these men in these certain positions. But what do we do when the head of the house, when the leadership is wrong? Well, I know what we do when the leadership is wrong. We ridicule and criticize them and tell them the whole government needs to be torn down, right? What happens when the leadership is wrong in your house? Complaining and murmuring? 
Can't believe this person did that. Can't believe that person did this. Keep in mind that when Moses smote the rock the second time, Moses was completely wrong, wasn't he? But God still fed Israel. Not because of what Moses did was right, but because God cared about Israel. And you have to realize sometimes, even in your own house, when the head of the house is wrong, God still cares. And God can take care of you even when the head of your house is wrong. And God can deal with the head of your house. You don't have to worry about doing that. God can do that. Solomon, in many cases, is going to be wrong in his decisions. So if God puts these men in positions like David, like Solomon, or think of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote in, uh, to the church at Corinth, and I believe it's 2 Corinthians 4, that he says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This earthen vessel that, that I possess, this body I have, I have a treasure in here. I have the treasure of the gift to speak to you at the church at Corinth. And Paul says, I have this treasure and it's given to me that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. We recognize that the gift to pastor a church or to preach the gospel comes from the hand of God. Do we not recognize that? And yet Paul would write to this church at Corinth and he would say, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas. Um, we have a tendency amongst ourselves to sort of preacher worship sometimes. That, that doesn't happen, does it? I mean, when it, whenever there's a meeting, we don't ever ask, well, who's going to be the, pe the preacher there, do we? We all do that. We, all have, it, we have to fight against that. Simply because there are some men that we know have applied themselves. Some men have not applied themselves. Uh, some men, you have a tendency to think they're going to feed the congregation. Other men, you look at them and you know through their reputation, they're going to waste the congregation's time. It's just a fact. It's just, just be honest. But if we're going to worship preachers or preachers are going to get the big head because maybe they are liked more than other people and this gift comes from God, if we are going to abuse the gift God gives, should God stop giving the gift? If we're going to abuse the gifts that God gives, should God stop giving gifts? God didn't bless Solomon because Solomon was good. God blessed Solomon because God was gracious. And God has blessed you in your life, not because you've been completely good your entire life, but because He's been gracious and merciful to the ignorant and the undeserving. It's just the way it is. Solomon says, you've put me in a position because thy great kindness that thou hast done this. He says in verse 8, And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore. 
thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? I don't, I don't think a greater question could be asked. Lord, if you're in the business of bestowing gifts, Lord, if you're in the business of visiting us with uh, a great blessing, then bless us with great wisdom that we can discern between good and bad. It's, it's very difficult in dealing with people around you to always know the right thing to say and the right thing to do. For we've said before that people will tell you just enough that you come to the same conclusion they did. And the Bible doesn't go long before that's exactly what happens. Here in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, uh, beginning with verse 16, is the story of the two women and the two children. And the story that's read out for us here is uh, these two women appear before Solomon. And, and the problem is, is that both women have delivered children around the same time. I think there's about a day or so difference between the birth of the children to these two women. And one of the women during the night, as she's uh, nursing the baby or as she's sleeping with the baby, rolls over on top of it, suffocates the baby, and the child dies. So she awakes in the middle of the night seeing this, gets up and goes to the second woman's bed and swaps the babies. And she's now kidnapped her neighbor's child. The second woman awakes during the night and she thinks that it's her child actually that has died, but upon obser observation she says, this is not mine, she's stolen my child. And now you have this bickering and this arguing of my word against hers. Boy, haven't we ever felt like this. <clears throat> haven't we ever seen this. In the court of law in our land, what is it but his word against mine, my word against theirs. In family court, this is, this is one of the most Deadly things in family court. It's always his word against her word, her word against his word, fighting, bickering back and forth. And if we stand back and we look, I think that there's a lack of great wisdom in the world today. Now, there's a lot of people in this world who are intelligent people. There are a lot of people in this world who are educated people. Oh, they may ace the SAT. Uh, they may be able to solve any math problem that you put before them. Oh, they may be able to point out every run-on sentence and every dangling participle that I leave throughout my sermons. There are a lot of intellectually educated people. But I don't know that there's very many wise people in this world. Man has a tendency to show you the hypocrisy in his laws and in his self. So, for example, you get pulled over uh, and you get a ticket for driving without a seatbelt because it's for your safety. That's the law of the land. You must drive with a seatbelt. If you're not wearing a seatbelt, 
You'll get a ticket because it's unsafe for you to drive without wearing a seatbelt. What about the man on the motorcycle? He's not wearing a seatbelt, is he? No, he's the one writing you the ticket. So then really it's not about safety. It's like it's about collecting funds for the coffers of, you know, you see this, you see this constantly. We've seen just this past week the hypocrisy of human beings. There was no concern about people who were setting dumpsters on fire, setting trailers on fire, tipping over porta potties. There was no concern about that. It was the other side of the issue. I believe it was, I believe it was Sergeant Grossman who said, 98% of the people in this world are sheep. There's 1% wolves and there's 1% sheepdogs. And the problem that we're having in this world right now is the sheep are demanding how the sheepdogs protect them. Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy runs through everybody's blood. And it's interesting how people will reject something that somebody else says based on that other person's character. Well, if you're going to reject what somebody says based on that person's past character or their uh, darkened life, you're going to have to reject everything in the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Because he ended up making a mess of his life. But the Proverbs is one of the greatest books of wisdom ever written. Regardless of the mess that Solomon made of his life, it is true what is written in the book of Proverbs from cover to cover, from verse 1 to the end. Those things that are contained in there are truth, and they are great things to guide and guard your life. The two women that appear before Solomon then have this issue. They have a he, he said, she said idea. And this is before, you know, DNA testing. So they can't swab the children and swab the mothers. And uh, you'd have to wait, I guess, several years before the young child begins to grow and develop and show uh, natural facial features as its mother. So what do we do in the process? And Solomon says, well, let's just take a sword. If we're fighting over the child, let's just take a sword and we'll just divide the child in half and give one to one and one to the other. I don't know that I'd have thought of that. But Solomon did. And the woman whose child it really was gave up the child immediately and said, no, just let her have it. If that's, if that's what it's coming to, let her have the child and I'll go home alone. And the second woman said, that's fine. You, you know, just cut it in half and it's neither mine nor hers. Who cares? And Solomon realizes that only the true loving mother would give up the child that it may live. And he returns the child to its rightful mother. And all the land was... As it says here, they were, they were filled with amazement. All Israel, this is verse 28, 
heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. In chapter 4, it says in verse 29 that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, I, I, I like that phrase also as we ponder this, that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, but he also gave him largeness of heart. Um, it, it's one thing to have wisdom or intelligence um, and not care about anybody around you. To have coldness of heart. But Solomon not only had wisdom, but he had largeness of heart. He had, he had great care for the nation of Israel. He had a great care for God's people around him, regardless of who they were, regardless of their background. We know from Paul's writings, and we know from the writings of historians, that the Jews placed a lot of emphasis on their genealogy. That's one of the reasons that you have this long, drawn-out genealogy both in Matthew and in Luke concerning Christ because He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So if you want to know how great your family tree is, I got one even greater than that, the tree of Christ. Solomon, it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter which tribe they came from. In other words, husbands, wives, life is difficult. And it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter how hateful the person is that you live with. Someone lives with somebody else just as hateful as you are. Everybody deserves to be loved. Treat your families with love and respect. Solomon says here, or the Bible says here, that God had given Solomon great wisdom, great understanding, and largeness of heart. And in verse 30, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And, he, and notice verse 32 now. He spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. There were 3,000 proverbs that could be contributed to the life of Solomon. And five songs. Or excuse me, 1,005 songs. We've only got the book of Proverbs. How many ever Proverbs that is, I have not bothered to count it up. It's quite a few. But we've only got the one song of Solomon. Someone may conjecture then, if, if Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, well, where are they at? Why didn't God bother to include them? That's a good question. i got a better question for you. If Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs 
and God saw fit to only include the ones that we have, how important are the ones that we have? Instead of focusing on the ones we don't have, maybe we should consider how greatly important the ones are that we do have. Solomon had a reign that was, uh, as far as we know, completely peaceful. Solomon's life in the book of 1 Kings uh, lasts for about 12 chapters. Much of that goes in depth in his uh, building the temple. Now, <clears throat> I'm very bored with the reading of the building of the temple. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, I do not get a thrill out of the knots and the knobs and the chains and the sticks and the staves and the curtains and so forth and so on. Now, I know that there are some engineering people among us that really like small, little, minute details. Uh, but if I ever want to go to bed at night and I can't sleep, one of the things that you can do is you can turn over there and read the Chronicles of the Kingdom. Uh, isn't it? <laughs> you ever noticed, isn't it interesting in the book of Esther when the king couldn't sleep, he called for the Chronicles of the Kingdom to be read? The most boring details of the kingdom. Well, you, yeah. And you kind of have to think that God has a, somewhat of a sense of humor, allowing the second book of the Bible to be Exodus, and the third book of the Bible to be Leviticus. Because reading through Genesis is easy, right? But if you don't exit in, in Exodus, you'll probably leave in Leviticus reading all of the rules and all of the do this and the thou four shouts. And, and then you get into those endless genealogies and it's like, my word, why is this in here? It's in there for a reason. I promise you this. It is in there for a reason. The details of the, of the kingdom, the details of the palace, the details of this temple, the details of the genealogies, the details of the laws, it's in there for a reason. I may not can delve it out to you properly, but I promise you, it's in there for a reason. We're not going to talk about Solomon and his temple. But it is in there for a reason. But there is one thing that I do have to ask. We read about the greatness of Solomon's kingdom. We read about the multitude of his horses. We read about the multitude of his chariots. And I wonder, I wonder if Solomon, like some of us, have a tendency to forget God. In Deuteronomy, and the reason I say that, you, let's turn to Deuteronomy 17 and let's, let's read a few things here. In Deuteronomy 17, let's, let's specifically notice verse 18 in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18 says, And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. 
and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This church, Grants Mill Church, I hope will never become a political church. I hope there'll never be a sign out front that says vote for such and such person. However, I hope that this church will be a place where we say vote for such and such principles. Not voting for people, vote for principles. You say, well, we shouldn't be involved in politics at all. Then pray God tell me why in the world God allowed two kings to write half the Old Testament. Please tell me. I will sit and listen. But I do know this, that politics is a sticky animal. And I do know this, that these people that that parade before us every four years, promising, I shall do thus and so, vote me in, I shall do thus and so, really have no idea what they're talking about. Because they're going to get up there and learn that it's a lot stickier than they thought it was. And it's a lot dirtier than they thought it was. And most of them, when they get up there, if they've got any sense about themselves, would pack their bags and go home. And some of them have in the past, actually. Solomon, though, as king in Israel, was to have before him a writing of Mosaic law, this book of Moses. He was to write his own copy and read it. If Solomon had done this, remember we said earlier that he increased greatly in his horses, he increased greatly in his chariots. And I would even, I would even propose to you I realized that the building of the temple was a great accomplishment. It was a great achievement. There's a lot of good things that you can learn about the building of the temple that Solomon did. But I wonder if people have ever stopped to realize what a burden it was on the people to build that temple. Mm -hmm. What an economic and financial burden it was on the people. Especially when you go to learn and see just the amount of food that passed through Solomon's palace just to feed him and his servants. It was a great burden. The bigger government gets, the bigger problem it becomes. It's just, this is just a historical thing. And I wonder if had Solomon had this in front of him and had written this, and had read this. Of course, it is not possible to remember everything that is in this book of Moses here. And we talk about the book of Moses, we're talking about the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To the Jews, it was just one book is what that was. Those are Gentile names. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are Gentile names where we've taken it and broken it up 
just for ease of consumption. Notice this, verse 14. Let's back up a little bit. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee. That's an amazing thing right there. That's why we require people to be an American citizen, to be president. And that's why we're having problems in our Congress nowadays because we have people in there who do not care about America and do not love America. They have no ties to this place. We're having problems because we didn't do it God's way. Imagine that. Imagine having problems because you didn't do it God's way. Astounding, isn't it? Uh, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Verse 16. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And Solomon violates everything in those last two verses, doesn't he? He multiplies horses and chariots. He multiplies gold and silver. But his biggest downfall is, is that he multiplies unto himself wives. Correct? Um, consider, though, uh, consider the culture also in which Solomon grew up in. David, his father, had how many wives? Whole bunch. Uh, about four, I think. Before David, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had, had at least three wives. Sarah, Hagar, and I, I can't I can't ever pronounce this woman's right. I think her name is Zathura, I think is, but at any rate, there's Abraham has multiple Isaac. Then you come up with Jacob and he just has a heat mo. What does this mean then since all these people prior to him had these multiple wives that, that God approved of polygamy? No, it, it's exactly the opposite, actually. They had all these wives, and God shows you the multiplied trouble that, that, that they all had. There was constant trouble between Sarah and Hagar and Abraham's house. And Jacob, with Rachel and Leah specifically, there was constant trouble in there because the one really that Jacob loved, let's see, Jacob loved Rachel the most. However, Leah was the one that bore him the most children. So it's almost like God's blessing was on Leah and Jacob's blessing was on Rachel. That's never happened, has it? Nobody's ever married somebody they wanted to marry as opposed to who they thought God wanted. Boy, that's difficult, isn't it? I know that doesn't happen in America today, but it happened in the Bible. And 
so Solomon, Solomon not only marries a woman in the book of Kings, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. He marries an Egyptian. Brings her in, but doesn't set her up in the palace at the right place because the palace was a holy place that they had at that time because the Ark of the Covenant was there. So he builds a house in another place for her. One of the things that we can notice about this is that Solomon was a wise king. That, that's given. But one of the things about sin is sin is always wiser than you are every single time. Somebody says, I, you know, I may drink a little bit, but I, I have enough ability to recognize when, when it starts getting away from me, I'll just quit. I can eat a little bit. It's not going to matter. When I get full, I'll just quit. You try that Thursday. Tell me how it works. It, listen, here, here's what we're looking at. In Solomon's life and in my life, and in your life. Paul himself said that he did not know the deceitfulness of sin until God quickened him and gave him life. And when God quickened him and gave him life and gave him a new perspective on things, he said, I then began to see the deceitfulness of sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Sin is not blatant in your face. Sin is sneaky. In, in Solomon, there are little compromises here and there. He married Pharaoh's daughter, but didn't exactly set her up in the house with everybody else. He put her in a house down the street. A little compromise. A little compromise here and there, here and there. The deceitfulness of sin is just, well, it's like this. We're in a building with the lights on this morning. We can see everything. Light's not sneaky. If you're laying in the bed at 3 in the morning and somebody comes in and flips a light on, it doesn't sneak up on you. It has a tendency to just jump right in there and say, Here I am! But sin, as being compared to darkness, is a sneaky thing. Because it covers what's actually around you. And so you wake up at 2.30, oh, golly, i got to get up. The worst thing about going to sleep is having to wake up in the middle of the night and go take care of business. And so you don't want to turn on any lights to wake anybody else up, but you need to turn on lights so you can sleep, uh, so you can see. But you're like, oh, I got this. And you walk and you walk and you forget. You forget the bedpost is there. Or you forget the chest of drawers. Is it? I know it's chest of drawers, but this is the south. So you forget chest of drawers is there. You forget the table is there. Or you forget that somebody left their shoe in the middle of the floor. Dumb husband. And, and there you go tripping and, and uh, bumping your toes. And you're finding out that God put that shin down there. Not really for anything other than finding furniture. That's what the purpose for the shin is. Is to find all the living room furniture and the bedroom furniture in the dark. And that's what sin is. Sin is a darkness that sneaks up on you. 
And before you realize it, you're entangled in it. So as we said earlier, you know, Solomon's life here uh, is, is really only the first 12 chapters uh, of 1 Kings. The first 10 of 1 Kings are really great. But then chapter 11 starts, but. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. When it comes to this particular passage of Scripture, I mean, and you can read... Uh, you can read through chapter, on, on through chapter 11 and uh, Solomon dies at the end of chapter 11 and uh, Rehoboam, his son, takes over the kingdom and the kingdom just goes downhill from there. Well, in this chapter, though, it's also prophesied, God tells Solomon, because of what you've done, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. However, for the sake of thy father David, I'll take it from you in your life. Here we have yet again someone being blessed because of someone else. I don't think this point can be overemphasized enough in our life that the Bible is constantly full of God blessing people because of someone else. And you say, well, why is this so important? Because in our day and age, the most prevalent thought among religious people is, is that God is not going to save you unless you do something unless you accept Him, unless you repent, unless you hold out and you hold on, and unless you're faithful and unless you persevere, uh, you, Solomon, did not persevere. Catch it? He did not end his life at the same height in his fellowship with God that he started his life. But why does Solomon get what he gets? Because of David, his father. Why are you going to get what you get because of Christ your Lord. God is going to bless you and every other elect child of grace because of the person of Jesus Christ. Solomon here is going to love many strange women. And when he says strange here, oftentimes the term strange, specifically in the book of Proverbs, refers to a woman who is not your wife. I have a wife. If I have an affair, uh, romantically, emotionally, whatever it is, with any woman, even any of you in here that is not my wife, you are technically a strange woman. But in this case, he's talking about women who are not Israelites. And I, I might could make, I might could make a small case that one of the most difficult things that primitive Baptists have fostered on themselves is marrying people who are not primitive Baptists. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot intervene and God cannot overrule and God cannot quicken or change the person that you marry. I've seen it happen. I know it has happened. It happened in my father's life. It happened in my mother-in-law's life. 
It's happened in the life of people, even in this congregation. But at the same time, I've seen just as many people, just as many homes wrecked in disaster and in chaos because they went out and uh, unwisely married themselves to someone who didn't care anything about the Primitive Baptist Church. We have to be wise in that issue. I have a problem dealing with the one wife I've got. Let alone 999 other women just like her. This baffles me. That Solomon had, as it is, a thousand wives, seven hundred wives, and three hundred concubines. This, this this baffles me to no end, just from a logical standpoint. But I guess if you're rich enough, you can afford anything. Did you catch it? Because I like to have enough money to pay my bills. You do too, don't you? I'd like, I like having enough money and being able to sit back and really breathe easy. So do you. As a matter of fact, when God told Solomon, he says, because you have not asked for riches, you asked for wisdom because you've not asked for riches, I'll give you not only wisdom, but riches to go with it. And, and the riches became a snare to him. Again, should God stop giving because we don't know how to deal with the gift? Oh, perish the thought. God still give. Bless us to handle the gift thou hast given. But I guess if you're rich enough, you can afford a thousand wives. <laughs> Gravy. <laughs> Just, golly. Oh, uh, and the Bible is true, though. The Bible was true that uh, they, will, they will turn your heart. <clears throat> I know you have good intentions. And I've heard it before. I realize he or she is, is not up to par. But you know what? I'll marry them and I'll change them. I've heard it. Y'all have heard it. Who got changed? If it's only human beings working... It's usually the one with the best intentions gets changed. And Solomon was one that got changed. And he built high places. When you talk about high places, if you're sitting in a if you're in a city or you're in an area like this, you're talking about high places, there are places up on the mountains. People will go up into the mountains and hide in the trees, and they'll build altars there. And they'll worship their gods in these high places away from everybody. That's that's what these high places were. They're places of idolatrous worship, hidden away from everybody else. And Solomon goes and he builds these high places to Chemosh and Molech and Ashtaroth. These pagan gods, to which we know specifically, reading throughout the Bible, that Chemosh and Molech were pagan gods and their number one sacrifice was the sacrifice of infant children. And we want to know why America has the problems it has, not even realizing that it set up its own altar to Molech in 1973. 
And when you murder or make it legal to murder your own unborn children, I don't see how in the world you can oppose anybody murdering anybody else. I, you know, this past week, a young man was on trial for shooting three people, killing two of them. We're angry about that. The nation was angry about that. However, if the two people he killed before they were born, their mothers had aborted them, we would have pinned a gold star on their mothers and did nothing about it. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is, uh, we won't, uh, I'm not, I don't have any intent to turn there, so don't start thumbing through there like we're going to point stuff out. Here's a, just a question for you. You've read through part of it, right? And you know that the main, there's a theme that runs through Ecclesiastes. Uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit under the sun. That appears constantly through the book. There's another theme that runs through the book, uh, a theme of monotony. Uh, Solomon describes the, the water cycle. The water falls from heaven and it rolls into the oceans and it evaporates and goes back to the clouds and then it falls again into the rain and then it rolls into the ocean and it goes back to the clouds. This, this monotonous cycle. Or you've got the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's chapter 3. There's a season and time for everything under the sun. A time to plant, a time to dig up that's planted, a time to build, a time to tear down that is planted, uh, a time to live and a time to die, a time to war, a time to peace. This back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Is that not about the... When you thought you were going to be an adult, everything was going to be different, right? When I move out and I get my own place and I do my own thing and I become an adult, everything's going to be different, right? And then you realized you've got bills that you've got to pay. You've now got to pay those bills that daddy used to pay. You've now got to mow that lawn daddy used to mow. You now got to wash those clothes that mama used to wash. You now have to uh, fix that food that mama used to fix. How do you like adulthood now? Because what is it? But one big monotonous cycle, is it not? You wake up at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock on Monday morning. You make your breakfast. You shave. You make your coffee. Whatever it is. You get in the traffic. Why is there so much traffic? Because they left the house together at the same time. And you get to work. And you sit here and work. And you sit here in your rat box. And then you drive in the same traffic the other direction to get home to fix some little bit of food to take a shower and go to bed so that Tuesday morning you can what? Do it again. Monotonous. Kind of wonder if Solomon wasn't writing this here in the last portion of his life. Because when you read through Ecclesiastes, he tells you, I tried everything under the sun. I got me men servants and maid servants. I got me women singers and men singers. I tried wine. I tried the best of the food. I tried the worst of the food. I was uh, moral in my intimacy. I was immoral in my intimacy. I did wrong things. I did all of this. But none of it made me happy. Kind of wonder if he's writing this in this 11th chapter of his life. I also wonder, you know, why do they call bankruptcy chapter 11? I don't know. Uh, Solomon's king in his palace. 
writing. It's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Because one of, one of the things he does not do in his wisdom is use his wisdom properly because he has got a terrible outlook on life. You notice that? He looks at life around him. He looks at life down here. Everything under the sun is vanity and vexation of spirit. And he writes this from a palace. In contrast to a man named Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians was written from, from a Philippian jail, wherein he says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Because Paul didn't have an outlook on life. Paul had an uplook. Because what he was doing, he was not doing necessarily because he lived on earth. He was doing because he was looking at the one in heaven who reigns on this earth. We can have the tendency in our life to let life get us down. Life can be a pretty miserable place. It can be a pretty rotten place. If we're just simply going through the motions. Friends, we're children of God. We're not children of this earth. This earth is not our home. There are some pretty deplorable and desperate situations down here on this earth. But if we spend all our time focusing on what's going wrong down here on this earth, it will make you miserable. If we spend our time, as Paul would write in the book of Colossians chapter 3, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth. Set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Solomon was a very wise man. He started out his life very well. And Paul would say in Galatians, you did run well. You started well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? If Solomon could fall, the wisest man of all, then I could fall too. We can't look to ourselves. You can't look to your own strength. And you can't look to your own wisdom. You have to look to the one whose wisdom personified, who says in Proverbs, our wisdom was with the Lord when he laid the foundations of the earth, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom. He is the intelligence. He is the understanding that we need. Paul told Timothy, he said, consider the things that I say unto thee, and the Lord give thee understanding. May he give us understanding in these days. Thank you for your good attention.